the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. For sports fans, there's no better place to get breaking news, real time commentary, and live sports stories than The Athletic. All the best, all the best writers, great podcasts, great everything, great follows on Twitter. Visit theathletic.com slash spot track for 40% off your first year subscription today. That's theathletic.com slash spot track. And of course, balance bridge funding, cost friendly, professional solutions for the financial world and professional athletes since 2015. Visit balancebridge.com. My name is Mike Gennetti. It is a baseball show. Nothing makes me happier. Cousin Dan on the back end of this show. He and I break down the starting pitchers who should be free agents in a couple of weeks here. It's about that time of year to break down, probably positionally here, um, which players will be available, possibly some trades, definitely some destinations and projected contracts. We'll sort of dive deep on, I don't know, 10 or 15 names from each position group as long as there's uh, that many to talk about. And certainly with starting pitchers, there are everybody from Kershaw to Scherzer to Robbie Ray to Marcus Stroman. We uh, we kind of go around the contenders and try to fit in some pieces to those puzzles. But Cousin Dan and I break that down in the back end of the show. And there's a nice discussion on Shohei Otani as well because his contract is coming up to situations here. Does he stay in Anaheim long-term? You know, what's the Mike Trout situation there? There's a lot to talk about, not to mention how do we just evaluate Shohei Otani from a financial perspective. So Dan and I get into that as well. But first, she's the best. MajorLeagueBaseball.com's Sarah Langs. She is your top researcher, top Twitter follow for Major League Baseball, honestly, every single night. She has some kind of nugget that she throws out about some random team, some random player that will make your baseball day. She slangs on sports on Twitter. I follow her every day. She's been on the show a couple of times, and this one did not disappoint. She's the best. Uh, some late season information, breakdowns about Juan Soto, breakdowns about pitches and the pitcher versus batter situation that went on this this year. Gets into the Cardinals winning streak, of course, which teams are maybe the most impactful in terms of notability this in 2021. We go all across the board with her and she's the best. So that's first. Cousin Dan and, and uh, starting pitcher free agents is on the back end. And that is your Spot Track podcast for today. Thrilled to have her back on the show. She's slangs on sports on Twitter. She's a researcher for MLB.com. Sarah Langs, welcome back to Spot Track. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. You bet. It's uh, getting down to about that time for Major League Baseball in the regular season. But I want to I want to step all the way back because I think what you do is really fun and really cool. And I want I want our listeners to kind of understand exactly what you're doing, right? So, so if I had to envision it, are you just sitting in front of a huge, you know, MLB game night where you're watching eight things happen at a time, or are you kind of feeding off? beat reporters across MLB.com and understanding like where are you kind of like an internal red zone, right? Where you're understanding where the juice is flowing on a given night. And then you're maybe diving into things specifically, or is it way easier? And are people reaching out to you specifically to kind of dive down rabbit holes? Uh, how about this? It's all of that. Yeah. Um, so I am, you know, sitting there streaming games, watching as many games as I can at once and, you know, keeping an eye on stuff. I mean, I don't quite like make notes heading into the night of, Oh, keep an eye on this, keep an eye on that. But I think, you know, as you're following the sport and every day builds off the previous one, 
it gets to the point where I sort of just know what I'm looking for um, in a given night. Like, okay, Wander Franco is playing again tonight. He still has that on base streak. I'll be on the lookout for that. Definitely make sure I'm watching the race in the first inning when he comes up, you know, batting second, all of that. Um, and that's just an example. But, you know, okay, Adam Wainwright's on the mound. Cardinals win streak, obviously a big storyline. Um, so keeping an eye on those kinds of things. But then uh, when I am, uh, I'm also online, you know, internally for our B reporters and anybody else, our editors and everybody kind of producing content for us at MLB.com uh, during, during live games. So often we get questions. Um, so I'll be helping with those. And then I am also sometimes just, you know, preemptively reaching out to those people and saying, Hey, here's something or want to make sure you saw this. Um, and sometimes they're just reaching out with, is there anything here? And half the time there is and half the time there isn't. So it's kind of just keeping track of all of that. But, you know, the center of all of it is just knowing what's going on in every game um, as everything is happening. What I like about your gig is you are not just hitting the, uh, you're not just playing the hits. You, you bring a lot of stuff out from bad teams. You know what I mean? Like, because on any, on any given night, yeah. the Orioles can still do something amazing or, you know, maybe two players Absolutely. on the Orioles can do something amazing, but you're making note of it. You're not just feeding to, you know, the bigger audiences, the bigger crowds. So it's a really interesting follow. You really are. It, it's a great nightly baseball Thank follow you. on Twitter. And uh, it's for that reason alone. You're kind of all over the board with interesting things. Um, so let's get into it. Uh, why is Juan Soto so darn good? How about that oh for a generalized question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there are so many reasons that he is so good, but it really just comes down to the fact that he is the best hitter in baseball. He's 22 years old. He has been the best hitter in baseball for at least probably the last two years. Um, and I expect him to be that for a while moving forward. And all of that really comes down to his eye and play discipline. If you look at chase rates, so swinging pitches outside the zone, he has one of the lowest chase rates in the majors since 2018, which means that if we look since the beginning of his career, when you come up and you're supposed to be a little bit out of source and swinging at bad pitches and all of these things, he has been on that elite Mike Trout type of level with his eye from day one. And my favorite stat about him this year that's kind of on that next level, you know, why is he good kind of playing is that he had by far the lowest swing rate in the majors this year. He has by far the lowest chase rate. So he's not swinging at bad pitches and he's not swinging all that much. But if you look at his hard contact per swing, so we talk about hard contact, that's 95 plus mile an hour exit velocity. Normally we talk about hard hit rate. We divide that by total, total batted ball. So we're saying how often when you make contact uh, with a pitch, is it going to be hard hit? But we can also divide it by swings. So instead of how often is your contact hard hit, how often are your swings hard hit, right? So the percentages are all going to be lower, but it's going to tell us a little bit something different. It's going to tell us how often you're swinging at the perfect pitch and making that outstanding contact. He has the highest percentage of swings producing hard contact in the majors. So wow. he doesn't swing very much, but when he does, he makes you pay. And that's why he's the best because he's not going to swing at something he doesn't want to. And he's going to wait. And if you make one mistake in that at bat, it's going over the wall. Absolutely. Uh, how, how far have you kind of dove, dove down on him in terms of his process and maybe how he gets to where he is right now as a 22 year old disciplined hitter? Is he, is he a video junkie? Is he 
you, do you know what I mean? Like, what does he geek out on to yeah. get to this point? Or is he simply just, he's just got the eye for it. I, I mean, I grew up with a couple of players who had, had an eye and, you know, they could have walked up to the game without their jersey on, thrown it on and walked up to bat and, and been nine times better than me at any given night. Sometimes it's just a God-given thing. But does he work at this? Does he does he sort of, uh, you know, assess his pitchers and, and kind of understand with them and maybe play with them and toy with them a little bit to get the kind of pitch he wants? Well, you know, it's a great question. And I will say that his eye and his play discipline was something that was touted about him even in the minors. I mean, the Nationals knew this, and I think teams, you know, managers of him and anyone who was facing him, even when he was in the minors, knew that this was what made him so special. So I'm not sure if that's all video. I, I think it's kind of a combination, if I were to guess, but I don't know for sure. Um, but he really seems to be um, just such a student of the game. And I, I think that the way that he's been able to adapt within the season, I mean, he very famously at this point, did the home run derby because he wanted to hit fewer ground balls. He wanted to have more of an uppercut swing. He wanted to swing away a little bit more. And so he said, I'm going to do the home run derby. So I hit fewer ground balls. And of course, you know, the typical narrative, and that's not true, is that the derby ruins your swing, which it doesn't. Uh, but he had the foresight to be like, you know what, this is going to fix my swing. And I just think that tells us that we're dealing with a highly intelligent ball player. I mean, and I really think that that's a lot of this is I think he just sees everything so differently than I do. And then we do um, as people who are not necessarily playing at this level, you know. Is it him and Mike Trout and nobody else right now in terms of that pure hitter talent? You know what I mean? Like, there's so much free swinging. I mean, you know, closet Mets fan, Pete Alonzo, Javi Baez, my goodness, talk about free swinging. Is there anybody else even in this tier in terms of being able to control the strike zone like this? Because it's such a, it's a dying art. And I think the last time we had you on, we know how dominant this pitching can be at times over huge yeah. stretches of a season. So it has to be swinging back to this way at some point in terms of the importance of being able to be disciplined at the plate. But I don't think we're there in terms of a large majority. I, I would agree with that, but I think there are some other, maybe not quite in that exact echelon. Uh, but I think that if he proves he can do this for a couple more years, that Brad Jr. may end up in that conversation as well. I mean, it's always going to be my favorite thing that he has turned into such a disciplined hitter because of who his father was, yeah, right? Exactly. His father is a Hall of Famer. It is no disrespect to him, but he was not disciplined at the plate, right? And that's what made him so great. And then you have Vlad Guerrero Jr., who I'm actually looking at uh, the StatCast leaderboard right now. So there's something called swing take runs. And essentially what it does is it breaks down every inch of the zone and every single pitch that you see. And you basically get a run or lose a run for the decision that was made, whether you swing or whether you take the pitch. And it takes into account, uh, you know, uh, number of outs and who's on and where the pitch is and whether it was kind of in that shadow zone where it could end up being a frame strike. It's considering all of that. And right now at the top of that leaderboard, Soto and Vlad are actually tied. And Vlad was actually leading the majors in this for a lot of early in the season. And that is something that is part of what has made him so great this year. I mean, obviously he's not seeing as many pitches in the strike zone as maybe he did when he was a little bit more struggling, if you can say that, early in his career in the first two years. But he's making the most of every pitch. And it's not quite on that Soto level of I'm just not going to swing if it's a bad pitch, which Soto basically just said. Um, 
But I do think that he is showing that awareness of the strike zone that, as you're saying, very few players these days have on that absurd level. I believe it. I saw him a couple of times live in person this year, and it is, it's hard not to appreciate what he's doing. And honestly, the, the difference yeah. between last year and this year specifically is unbelievable. Not just the physical difference, but certainly with the discipline yeah. as well. Uh, he's certainly on the watch list in terms of what we're doing over at Spot Track. But um, real quick, let's circle back to the pitchers. Um, I mentioned, you know, it was a huge story. The no-hitters, the domination. Uh, the, you know, the strikeout rates that were so high and ridiculous, the home runs were way down. They were blaming the ball. They were blaming foreign substances. They tried to mitigate most of that during the middle of the season. Is it a tale of two seasons here in terms of what you've seen statistically? Did things sort of even out, balance out, or maybe even swing a little bit more towards production? It's going to anyway with the hot weather. I know that. But, um, yeah. you know, it was such a driving force to April, May, and June with how dominating pitchers were and, and people were worried that the game was ruined, quite frankly. Um, overreaction? Did it balance itself out? I, I think that it always would have balanced itself out. You know, I mean, I know that we saw some differences, um, you know, with the crackdown on sticky substances and everything for certain pitchers. But ultimately what ended up happening was that good pitchers are still good, like a Garrett Cole, where there was some notable spin rate drops. But then, you know what? He's still a scion contender. He's still been really good. And some of the pitchers who maybe had more significant drops and then didn't pitch as well were, you know, not even that great, even when they did have that, right? So I, I really think that it comes down to really the law of averages and the fact that stuff evens out. I mean, you mentioned the weather, and I think that's a big factor. I mean, we forget how cold it is at so many of these games in April and May. And the other thing is that these no-hitters, I mean, obviously they're – a huge testament to a career for an individual going out, throwing one like that. It's incredible that a guy like Wade Miley now has that on his resume, and that is such an outstanding thing. But there is an element of randomness to it. I mean, it, it feels like often we have seasons. I mean, in 2015, we had a handful of no-hitters, and it felt like they all happened within a couple months span, you know. So it just happens like that. And then we don't have one for a long time. And then the Brewers have one, you know, and then there's some other bids and whatever else. But it, it to me, it's just the course of the season. And I don't know why they were all concentrated early in the year, but I really don't think it was a commentary on the game. I think it's just, you know, how things end up distributed. And there's no question that the Rangers and the Indians and, you know, some of these teams that were being no hit, we're not having that great of seasons, which also comes down to just the composition of the roster and everything else. And if you happen to get the day where Kramer Reyes isn't playing or Kramer Reyes is in a slump or Jose Ramirez, you know, the couple good hitters on any given team, this is what happens. I, you know? I, I love that you finished on that note because that was going to be my counter is I'd lean more towards the competitive imbalance discussion that I would, you know, that the game, that the mound needs to be raised or moved back or whatever. You know what I mean? I think it is, yeah. I think it is more about the roster construction than it is about the game itself. And I, and I do believe that's what they're discussing this winter when it comes down to the CBA. I won't take you down that path. Don't worry. Speaking of randomness, if I told you that of the crop of 2021 free agents that are now, uh, now signed and have played, played almost an entire season, the most innings pitched, and most wins would be Adam Wainwright. The most hits and home runs would be Marcus Simeon. And the most RBIs would be Adam Duvall. You would say? 
baseball is the best. This is this is why we love this sport, right? I mean, it's just so funny how these things play out. I mean, you know, all of those guys are good players who are known to be good players, right? And um, especially with Wainwright, I mean, he had looked a little bit le- better lately, but it was okay. Is this his final year entering the year? I know he, I know he's now said he'll pitch one more, but you know, we didn't know, is this the last hurrah? Well, what is this going to be? And it's incredible to see him going out there at this age, basically leading the majors and starts with uh, of at least seven innings. He's either leading or tied to lead there and just doing everything durable. And that team, by the way, winning all of these consecutive games, and now they're going to play in the postseason. They have a chance to clinch very soon and it feels all but certain at this point. And Adam Duvall is a fascinating player. I mean, you know, he was on the Giants when the Giants were still um, in their previous kind of little dynasty that they had going, and there wasn't really a space for him, and he never really got consistent playing time. And then he ended up, you know, he was on the Reds, and he hit a bunch of home runs, and, you know, he was on the Braves and back on the Marlins, and now he's back on the Braves. And it's great to see a guy like that having that kind of moment, and that's how I feel about Marcus Semien as well. I mean, the ultimate betting on yourself with Marcus Semien. And now he's going to get a great contract this offseason. I mean, I don't know what your projections are saying, but um, I feel like everyone I've heard uh, talking about it, just, you know, analysts and stuff expecting a big number for him. So you just love to see someone succeed in that way. Five years, 90 million is what I'm guessing for Marcus Semien. Wow. Yeah, not not break the bank stuff, but I think he would accept that as a, as a bit of an upgrade, Yeah, uh, especially the multi-year. The... The situation in St. Louis is unbelievable. It's fun. It's great that it's yeah. sort of finishing the season this way. This We've seen NFL teams do this and kind of finish super strong and then have momentum yeah. into the postseason, and I, I can see that happening in St. Louis. Give us the breakdown of this 16-game winning streak and where it kind of ranks and where it could end up and all that good stuff. Oh, my gosh. I mean, my favorite stat with it, and it's actually a stat that's now um, finished because they're done playing on the road. So all their games uh, remaining are home games. So on Sunday, when they won number 16 in a row at Grizzly Field, that was their uh, 11th straight road win within the entire uh, 16-game win streak. So they became the second team in MLB history to win their final 11 or more road games in a season, joining the 1887 Philadelphia Quakers, who are now the Phillies. But You know, they were the Quakers then. They were playing teams like the Indianapolis Hoosiers and the Detroit Wolverines, which don't even sound like baseball teams to us at this point, but they were back then. Um, And I just absolutely love that. And, you know, the other thing is, of course, as you mentioned, them doing this in September and doing this as they're pushing for the postseason. And the postseason literally starts next week. So it's already tied for the third longest win streak uh, in the regular season within the months of September and October in the modern era. So the 1916 Giants, which is the longest win streak in MLB history, they won 26. It was all in September. Um, The 1935 Cubs won 21 straight. And then we have the Cardinals and the 1909 Pirates. They won 16 straight in September as well. Okay. So we get to the end of the regular season in terms of statistics with MLB.com. Does it, does it stop there? Play postseason wins don't count towards the streak, right? Well, yeah, I mean, just generally, and that's not even MLB.com, that would come from like the Elias Sports Bureau, like the official mm-hmm. uh, data or stats providers of Major League Baseball. 
uh, regular season stats are always separate. I mean, we can combine them. Like I could search for that. Um, but generally if they were to win out, which again would be insane. Um, I'm sure we would count it. We would talk about it, but technically for the record, um, it would have to be regular season. Would it pick back up next year? I mean, technically it would. Um, This kind of comes up sometimes when guys have like on base streaks or hit streaks to end the season, like, you know, a 10 game hit streak to end the year. And then you start out with a 20 game hit streak to start the year. Like technically that's 30, but uh, you know, this is why qualifiers end up important. Um, I think usually with stuff like that, we would confine it to single season. You know, we would say single season, Uh, but if they were to win out, regardless of what happens in the postseason and they went on opening day next year, I would probably be talking about single season when I look back on this historically, you know, cause I, it's hard to associate that, but if they start out with like another 10 wins next year, then of course we're talking about at that point, like a 40 something game win streak or whatever it would be. Yeah. Um, I'm going to keep, it. I'm going to keep on it, even though the record may not, I think it makes sense. I really do. Yeah. Um, Two more points and I'll get you out here. I really appreciate your time. She's at slangs on sports on Twitter. Tough to say, easy to write. Um, (laughs) The team that you think you have broken down, analyzed, assessed, um, talked about the most this year, just, just from your standpoint, from really having to sort of go, go deep or maybe have interesting facts and figures, which team do you think as a whole has given you the most work in 2021? I think it's probably the Giants. I mean, I think that inherently as a team that sort of surprised us, right? We weren't expecting them. You know, the Pakota projection was what, 75 wins. And here they are already with 100 with the potential to win like 104, 105, something like that. Um, I think that sort of, you know, we got to May and we got to June and they were still there. There was a feeling of like, okay, how is this still happening? And I think that that, ended up lending itself to a lot of research. I mean, I wrote about Kevin Gossman early in the year. I know he stumbled a bit down the stretch for them, but, you know, his four-seamer and his splitter were among two of the best pitches in baseball, and using his splitter more made his four-seamer better, you know, things like that. And their offense is fascinating, too. You know, Brandon Crawford, of course, getting that extension a couple weeks ago and having a career year at the age of 34, which nobody does, but yet he's here doing and you know, them scoring a lot of runs via the home run, not getting runners in from third, but it doesn't matter because they hit home runs. I mean, there's just so many things to break down uh, the way that they've managed the season, which I think has been, um, you know, very sort of raisin Dodgers-like. And I mean that in a positive way, um, just in terms of really getting contributions up and down the lineup and really playing matchups very well. So I feel like all of that has lent itself to a lot of research. Sounds good. I'll get you out of here on this. I gave you some homework. I'm hoping you came through for me. Um, One of the big stats I continued to see, and I saw it again last week, which is just one of those incredible Juan Soto stats, Sarah. Um, You talked about his discipline. You've talked about his inability to swing when 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 it's not the right pitch and his batted ball and his power bats. Um, The high fastball, that's out of the strike zone, whether it's up and away, up and in, or straight up. The one that we see every, you know, big time hitter try to try to go after every single time, even still to this day. I'm singling up Pete Alonzo specifically here. Um, he doesn't swing. He has zero swings on those pitches. It's the one thing he has in his brain 
that he's absolutely not going to waste a pitch on. Is that the strikeout pitch for 2021, the high fastball? So it's a great question, and I did look into it. So what I first kind of did was just broke down strikeouts by uh, pitch types. So 42% of strikeouts this year have been on fastballs. We have 39% on breaking balls, and the rest are on off-speed. So I think that's one thing that kind of gets to changes in our game. I didn't pull it for previous years. I mean, I can do it right now as I'm saying it, but I'm pretty sure that that strikeout rate on breaking pitches continues to go up. I mean, I think that that's something we've really seen lately, um, sort of in, in conjunction with the rise in velocity is also the rise in the importance of those breaking pitches. So um, the fact that those are both so close was first something that was interesting to me. Um, and indeed, uh, the strikeout rate, um, percentage of strikeouts that have been on fastballs is among the lowest it's been since we've been tracking this since 2008. Um, the high was in 2009 and, you know, 2019, 2020 are all among the years that are the lowest rates of that. Wow. So I did want to point that out. Um, and to the point of, uh, pitches, uh, high fastballs, so out of the zone, so 11% of all strikeouts this year, um, that's every strikeout that has been tracked, have been on high fastballs uh, out of the zone. So unfortunately, in order to break down every single one, it would be about 16 searches. So I was not able to pull <laughs> all of those. I was like sitting here a couple minutes before we were recording. And I was like, I don't think I can do that in time. <laughs> but I will tell you that based on the fact that you know, the majority of strikeouts have been on fastballs and there are so many zones. And if you look at like the game day zones, if you watch, uh, yep. if you track games on there, uh, it's only two zones that are those high fastball zones. So just even logically, the fact that that is comprising 11% of all strikeouts tells me that it has to be among the most frequent. I would guess that, you know, some breaking balls low and away mm-hmm. um, and a couple other pitch types and zones kind of like that are probably amongst some of the other top, but uh, it definitely feels like we've seen a ton of those. And I can give you the historical um, on those as well. So how frequently um, we saw strikeouts on those pitches in prior years, you know, we can go go, uh, back to 2008. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is among the top, but actually the top of the list is 2008. So in 2008, 13.3% 13.3% of all strikeouts were on high fastballs. So um, that's an interesting narrative too. You know, I wonder if the rise in breaking pitches has taken away from some of that. I have no idea. That is fascinating. And it's, yeah. it's only going to keep going with these uppercut swings. That's just, that's just yeah. where it is. That's the hole in the strike zone right now for so many players. And the fact that it isn't for Juan Soto is why he's going to be $500 million soon. Yep. <laughs> that's that's my takeaway from I that. Saw that uh, <laughs> I saw that projection come out from you the other day, and I was just nodding along. Like, this sounds exactly right, and it's going to be so exciting to see that happen. It is, and the discussion of where it's going to be is probably more fascinating, yep. right? Because that's not a team right now that's fit to, uh, to spend $500 million on one single player, non-pitching player, by the way. Um, good stuff from you. I, I love this. I could do this every single week. Um, c- congrats yeah. on a great year. Good luck down the Thank stretch. You. And we'll be watching you in the postseason as well. Slangs on sports on Twitter. Sarah, thanks so much. 
Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And congrats on uh, your baseball season almost starting, right? <laughs> November 1st, November 4th. That's when your baseball season starts, I feel like. So we'll all be watching uh, everything that you're turning out always, but especially then. Send coffee, Sarah. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. All right, joined by Cousin Dan. It's Major League Baseball free agent season for many teams, Dan. Not specifically for the ones we're going to talk about today, though, which is kind of interesting. We're kind of doing this backwards, but I like the approach. I kind of tasked you with the uh, the opportunity to look at the starting pitcher situation this offseason, which is kind of leading the day. There's a lot of nice options here. We're going to ignore the fact that there may not be baseball and there might be a brand new CBA with lots of changes. <laughs> Let's just assume everything's the same and the luxury tax and whatnot is all intact. Um Let's start with your favorite contender here. Which contender in terms of starting pitching either has a player or two that's going to hit the open market that's extremely notable or you think will be extreme high shoppers for one of these available starting starting pitchers this winter? Yeah, so yeah, I wanted to take the approach with this that um, a lot of the free agent pitchers, uh, while there are some really good pitchers out there, um, they uh, there's a lot of older guys um, that are probably who have been paid and are probably not going to be looking to milk every last dollar and would probably rather find a a nice landing spot to um, either finish their career or try and go after a world series. However, however you want to look at it. So um, a lot of the higher end options, I think will settle into um, the, you know, the actual contenders in the league. Um, these teams that are maybe one or two pitchers away or, or might just need a bona fide eight. So um, on that note, I think um, I would probably say either the White Sox or um, perhaps the Blue Jays are one of those teams that I think are maybe one giant move, um, you know, adding a, adding a stud pitcher away from um, being, you know, bona fide uh, favorites for the World Series. Yeah, let's, let's start there. Those two teams specifically, you know, sticking in the American League kind of. The Yankees are going to try to poach everybody here. Let's be perfectly frank about what's about to happen. The Yankees need a pitcher and one legitimate five-tool player. That's how I kind of view their offseason here, whether that's a one of these stud shortstops, whether that's maybe getting rid of one of their big bats in the outfield uh, and uh, kind of addressing a need there to fill speed versus power versus all that. But they're going to be involved with all the names we're going to mention today and all the names you're going to hear out there. Robbie Ray, they were involved with Robbie Ray last year, by the way. Robbie Ray, Kevin Gosman, Max Scherzer, uh, the works. Are the Yankees in a position where they're going to poach, where they're going to overpay this year specifically to make sure Toronto, Chicago, those teams in the American League don't, you know, Boston, of course, don't get either these players back or don't add these players this free agency season? Is that how you assess the Yankees right now? Well, I think that mindset is is fair. It's a good point. I don't think they're going to operate in terms of trying to block other teams, um, you know, specifically within their division that are further along. I think they just purely want to upgrade their own staff, regardless of what the division looks like. Now, that brings in a, a really good point that the Yankees staff is not atrocious, but it lacks high end upside, you know, beyond Garrett Cole, in my opinion. So, they, if you if you look at these names, there's only a few names I would really consider as upgrades or um, impact additions to that team, mainly because that 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 division is loaded and it's a difficult ballpark to hit in uh, Yankee Stadium. So, 
a lot of these pitchers that they, you know, we saw that Andrew Heaney experiment go totally south. Um, Corey Kluber's decent, but injured. Um, Jameson Tyon, same thing, uh, you know, and then it's just a bunch of guys. So uh, what I'm trying to say is if they add, if they target B or C level, you know, tier free agents, I don't really think it makes a monster impact on, right. you know, on this rotation. They might just be better off going with Nestor Cortez or, you know, some of their younger guys down the line. Now where I, I bring that up because I think they will be big fish um, shopping this off season. Now, if that's, if that's Max Scherzer or whether Scherzer just resigns in LA or, or wants to go somewhere else, um, you know, that's a whole nother discussion, but th- there was a lot of smoke with the Yankees and him prior to the deadline. So um, I, I guess just, just, just paint a broad stroke over this. I think that they will be, um, in serious conversation for one of the top uh, three or four guys. I, I, I'll say three because I think Kershaw will just naturally end up um, back in L.A. So um, between between um, Scherzer, Robbie Ray, and um, Kevin Gossman, I think I think they'll they'll be heavily targeting one of those three guys. Are are those definitely your top three? Because I'm looking at the list right now. Um... And we've got a, a piece on dot com right now that kind of coincides with this, where I've got some valuations, some possible contracts for these players specifically. Um, the list is you've mentioned age. Age is a factor. Pet prior injury is a factor. And then you've got Robbie Ray, Kevin Gosman, maybe I, uh, to some degree Marcus Stroman, players who sort of just had one great year. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or or maybe they've had a couple of great years, but they were sporadic. Inconsistency has been sort of their resume coming forward. Is there a slam dunk here? No, I mean, okay, uh, let me back up. Sure, Scherzer is a relative slam dunk in my opinion, but he is 37. And I mean, the decline right. has to start setting in. I don't think there's going to be a cliff there by any means. But um, so even, even if, you know, even if Scherzer is a guy that's, you know, projected for two years, might get three years, um, you know, now you're going into the age 40 year and, and really, are you going to, are you going to get, uh, can you count on him to stay healthy for the next three years at the money you're likely going to need to pay him? So I would say he's, he's, uh, he's relatively automatic at this point. Um, the other guys, yeah, there's massive questions around them and, um, you know, while I'm confident that they will be good pitchers, I, I just, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it's tough for me to wrap my head around uh, a giant Robbie Ray contract when really he had one insanely good year, which was somewhat comparable to um, one of his prior seasons. But beyond that, it, his career has largely been a disaster. So um, yeah, yeah, I have, I have a hard time really thinking that they'll, um, that, that there's a lot of, um, you know, easy options to turn to. And that's why I say it's kind of, to me, it's for the Yankees, it's kind of Scherzer, Gothman, or, or Bust in terms of, you know, those other guys aren't going to really make me think that they've drastically improved, if you know what I'm trying to say. There's a world where Marcus Stroman is the safest option off this list. He, I, he is who I, he is, you know, and he's been in both leagues. You've got a taste of that. So has Robbie Ray now. Um, and I'd probably put them so, somewhat neck and neck, but I, I could see teams putting Marcus Stroman at the top of their list with this offseason. I can too, Mike, but I do, I do feel a little hesitant. Um, you know, his, I, I, he, he's more of a uh, finesse pitcher. Yeah, absolutely. Ball pitcher, but not high absolutely. Guy. Contact. 
yeah, so I, I like him for that reason, but I also think that that type of player needs the, the proper landing spot. He's not just a guy that you plug and play in any lineup, any ballpark, any situation, in my opinion. Um, and we have seen him in like specifically piggybacking on the Yankees. I, I, I tried putting him on the Yankees and I really just the ball. Oh, he's been in the AL East before with Toronto. We saw how that went beyond, you know, his first, you know, his first year in the league. It, I have a really hard time finding a landing place for Marcus Stroman, although I really like the player and I think he adds a lot of value. I just think he set himself up to get paid and that contract might not, whatever he gets this off season, it, it may look like a bad contract by when it's all said and done. You know what I mean? It, like yeah. it, it seems like bait. Marcus Stroman seems like bait to me in a way, but I've got Stroman. I like him a lot. I've I like got him, him a lot. You'd hire than Robbie Ray right now, Dan. I've got Stroman getting almost twenty-five a year. I've got Robbie Ray at just twenty a year on a little bit longer because of his age. But I, I think I agree with you that both those kind of feel like uh, I don't know, multi-year. You know, that far along with those guys, they seem like maybe two, three years, and then who knows? But that's not when you're talking about this list. Scherzer's not getting more than two, in my opinion, and that's because of what just happened with Verlander. I think the Verlander situation Wait. is literally the putt before you had to putt. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not doing that again, you know? Right, right. I, I will point out two specific situations with some of these, specifically Robbie Ray, and I will even add Carlos Rodon on this yeah. list. I would feel more comfortable with those two guys getting a um, slightly inflated deal if it is staying with their current teams. And now I say that with Robbie Ray because, something obviously clicked with that relationship there. I don't know. I I don't know the inner workings. If it's the, you know, the pitching staff or the pitching coordinator in Toronto had a different um, view than Arizona, but obviously something clicked when he went to Toronto. So I would feel more confident if it's Toronto giving him a big deal than him going to, you know, a change of scenery, him going to a new situation and them hoping that he is the pitcher that he was in Toronto. And I do say that with Carlos Rodon a little bit, um, not that, you know, he like resurrected his career by going to a different team, but um, this year he did put it together. Uh, I, you know, he fits well as like a number three, four pitcher in that specific rotation. Now, if he goes somewhere else and gets a pretty big deal and is expected to be, you know, a bona fide number two, then I have a lot of hesitation there if that's a big deal. You know what I mean? So <laughs> the, the free agent piece I put together, Dan, I have Carlos Rodon and Robbie Ray both getting five years, $100 million. And with the expectation that both would be back where they are. I can't, I can't imagine Toronto moves on. I can't. And, and if you have to overpay, you're going to overpay longer than shorter in order to keep it low because you've got to sign probably three, four other players on that roster right now. And one of them being Marcus Simeon, in my opinion. The reason I have Stroman valued higher from an average annual standpoint is I expect him to be somewhere else. And when you do change teams... Generally, you're going to get the biggest fish. You're going to find the biggest payday, which, you know, he took a one-year qualifying offer this past season after opting out with the Mets. Um, I think that's right. I think it's more likely that Stroman is on a bad team next year <laughs> for a higher payday. That's sort of how I read the tea leaves there. Um, and I've got Kevin Gosman on a $20 million contract as well. But, you know, two or three years, is, as I'm assuming... He's going to be a number two or a number three on a contender, whether it's staying in San Francisco, whether it's jumping ship to San Diego, whether the Yankees and Red Sox get involved. He feels Red Soxy to me, by the way. That seems like a move they would make. But 
long, long sentence short here, Dan, I don't have many guys valued north of 25 million. Many are at 20 million. Um, Kershaw and Scherzer are still at 30 million plus because of who they are and, and sort of the twilights of their career. It's going to be short and sweet, but really high impact. Uh, like I said, there's a lot of nice names here, but with the way baseball is right now, with how free agency has gone, and I think the likelihood that many of these players return to their current clubs, you're not going to see top of the market contracts for that kind of situation. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I really like your point on Stroman there that it's probably more likely than not that he's on, uh, you know, a non-contender. Um, the flip side of that is if he is on a contender, I think he's, his contract will automatically make him like a number two pitcher. And I'm not real confident if you're going to be paying, uh, you know, Marcus Stroman to be your number two pitcher, 20 mil over $20 million a year. So um, I really, I really like that point. I think that's um, fair. I think the Mets valued him at 19 million last year as a number two on the qualifying offer. So that's his value. <laughs> if he's a number two somewhere else. So to, to make that jump to 25, like I'm saying he's going to do is I'm saying he's going to Baltimore to become, you know, John means one B that's really what I'm saying. And I think somebody overpays for him. You know, I don't know how many teams would do that right now. Maybe Texas would to get back in, in contention situation, but yeah, it's fragile. He's a fragile top free agent. If that's what he's going to be out there. Yeah. And uh, to your point about, you know, these guys with, you know, are, who else is going to get over $20 million in terms of value? I, w I would rather, you know, as a team, I would prefer to target someone we haven't seen it from that will cause them to get a limited, con their, their contract won't get inflated. Uh, let me back up. Uh, like, Ed, you know, Eduardo Rodriguez, somebody like that who has a ton of pedigree and we just have, we just flat out haven't really seen it yet. Um, Sorry, we've seen it a little bit, but you know what I'm trying to say. You target that guy on a cheapish contract for only two or three years, um, and I think the value is going to work out really well on that as opposed to somebody like Stroman who you're, you know, he, he's going to catch lightning in a bottle because he's one of the better free agents in a very limited free agent class. I think Steven Matz is in that conversation. I think he found his legs a little bit in Toronto. He made about five million last year in Toronto, which was really good value for a you know a mid rotation guy that he ended up being. If he wants to go searching for bigger dollars, I bet he finds it with the potential, the ceiling that he could have as a former number one pick. Definitely, there's a number of names. I mean, like, I mean, D Dylan Bundy's had a number of chances. He's gotten shelled at almost every stop besides <laughs> besides one one season, but. Um, like he's another guy that was a high draft pick. Somebody might look at the skills and say, Hey, I can, I can squeeze a little bit more out of that. And, um, you know, at the end of it, we might be saying, Holy cow, one of those players got signed at a really reasonable deal and the production, uh, you know, far outweighed what, what the cost was. Yeah. So, what you're kind of looking for is Kevin Gosman 2.0, right? Like uh, just the guy who was a guy and then all of a sudden became the guy and sort of fell back down to earth a little bit. The second half of the season didn't have the, you know, a full 30 starts in him at, at that capacity. But teams would take that if, if somebody can carry you for four months of, of a regular season and, and sort of be a top rotation guy on a really valued contract. I, I like your Eduardo Rodriguez pick. I think Bundy's got a chance, you know, to some degree, there's a Pineda in there, there's a walk in there, but th they've had so many chances. So is Andrew Heaney, as you mentioned with the Yankees. Um, John Gray's got to be one of those candidates. And yes, he's coming off an injury. And yes, he's been playing in Coors Field. And there's a lot of red flags surrounding him. But he's not yet 30. 
Um, he's going to get a chance to pick his team this offseason, which I like. He's probably a name I target as high ceiling, maybe low risk right now. Absolutely. I totally agree. He's uh, He's got the pedigree. He seemingly has the tools, but has never really put it together more than, you know, outside of like a 10 game stretch there in Colorado. So, um, but he's a, he's a great example of a guy that I think, um, you know, gets under the mentorship of a, of a different, um, you know, development program. And he, he might take off. I mean, he might fall flat as well, but. I love where you have him projected on this document, Dan. I, I I think the St. Louis Cardinals and John Gray are a match made in heaven. <laughs> yeah, and I basically listed the Cardinals with a bunch of um, you know, sort of reclamation projects, if right. you will, because they're they're sort of the giants of the East, if you will, and um, and they have a good reputation for for you know, John Lester was getting shelled before he right. went there at the trade deadline, and he's had a really good second half here. Um, they they have countless countless examples of that and there is very little uh there are very few meaningful players um signed on that staff beyond this year so i think that they will definitely be in the market and you know they have to they they probably need to add at least two guys to that rotation so i think that they'll be targeting um you know some of these these um lesser known but potentially high upside guys and i think john gray is one of them okay speaking of which right Let's talk about two players and get out of here on the starting pitching stuff. Noah Syndergaard, uh, I don't know if he's going get to get to the mound. It sounds like he's close. The Mets want him to have a start. Um, I, I imagine it's it's either an opening position or maybe some kind of middle relief role. But he, he's trying to get back and get himself back in a mound this season before it all ends. He's set to become an unrestricted free agent after the season. Certainly had a bunch of good years, but there's some injuries mixed in here, notably the you know the big one last year that took him to surgery. He's one of these reclamation projects, but how do you sign a player that you've seen nothing from? You know what I mean? Like, how, how do you value this guy? You know, do the Mets slap a qualifying offer on him? I, I imagine Conforto gets one. Do they slap two qualifying offers this offseason and, and give one to Syndergaard, knowing it could be almost $20 million? And then subsequently, is that a situation that's intriguing to Noah? You know, does he want to see himself sort of recover from this injury, stick with the Mets for one more year, get a halfway decent salary, you know, pretty good, pretty good chump change right there. And then do this all over again in 2022. What are your thoughts about Syndergaard? Will he stay? Will he go? And, and kind of how you do, how do you value him with so little scene? I could, I could see him going for a prove it deal, whether that is a qualifying offer from the Mets and him saying, let me prove I'm healthy and then I'll tackle this next year. Um, or maybe he just wants a total change of scenery as well. And we'll take whatever, whatever's out there on the market. Um, I really don't know what he's going to do though. He, he is one of the pressure points on all of this. Uh, you know, as the dominoes fall, I'll be very intrigued to see, um, where he goes and when he goes, if he's one of the earlier signings in free agency, if he kind of lets things shake out and then finds a landing spot. I, I really like, I don't know what to do. I think there's still a ton of talent there. I also think there's been enough injuries there to label him injury prone, which I, I have a hard time thinking a team's going to give him um, either a lot of money or a lot of terms. So I, I would side on, he needs to prove a deal, but we could be talking about him as, you know, the premier free agent next off season, if that's the case. Does he go back home? Um, started off as a blue Jay. Dan. I, I did think about that. 
I I think the Blue Jays are too close to being like bona fide World Series contender, you know, bona fide World Series favorites even, um, for them to to risk it being Cindergard they go after. Now, now all of that changes if Robbie Ray leaves, but um, you know, if, if they sign Robbie Ray, are they going to bring back Cindergard? Probably not. But I really don't have a good handle on that. But it is an intriguing landing spot for sure. For sure. I mean, they did get Barrios in there to pair with Ryu, which is a nice one-two punch. You can argue if either of them is an actual ace or not. Um, now, now, you know, adding, you know, keeping Robbie Ray is an incredible top three. Now, if Robbie Ray leaves, it's Syndergaard. Is you know, is that a really incredible top three anymore? It's a good but not great one. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of think, you know, laying out my thoughts here as we talk, but mm-hmm. I don't know what is going to happen with Sinatar. Quick tangent. Is the qualifying offer situation working as we approach the, the CBA discussions here? And, you know, I don't think we'll hear much from what's being discussed behind the scenes, but, you know, we may hear every now and then some of the elements pop out. Is that is that a point of contention, you think, in this new CBA? Uh, oh, it's definitely going to be a point of contention. I think the quali- qualifying offer works better for pitchers than position players. I think it kind of limits. Um, I mean, pitching is just so expensive right. to, to go and acquire, you know, if you're not developing it. So at least, th- at least there you're taking like a high, you know, a high cost, low, relatively low risk, you know, um, gamble on that player. Whereas, the qualifying offer with a position player, I just think it's way lesser upside with that. So, um, but it's definitely going to be, I don't know if we'll even have a qualifying offer here, you know, a year from. I think that's fair. And last one, uh, he's not on your list because he's not a free agent, but I, I've been w- waiting to discuss this with you for a, a few weeks now, maybe a couple of months, honestly, because it's going to be, it's going to be a part of my off season. And I think it's probably going to be a part of the angels off season as well, Dan. How the hell do we evaluate Shohei Otani? How, how do we even start? You, you know what I'm equating it to? I had so much trouble with George Kittle because he was so non-traditional in, in, in what he was doing. He was he was such an excellent pass catcher. He had more receptions than even the A wide receivers. He but he was doing all these other elements of the game that set him apart from even you know Amari Cooper at the time. I had so much trouble just singling out a specific set of skills for, for George Kittle that eventually I, I had to combine multiple evaluations together to get to basically an average. Do I, do I have to do that with Shohei Otani? Or do I have to be smarter about it and more logical about it, Dan, and understand that he's probably not going to be doing both of this much longer? And then if that's the case, which is it? And where does he fall as just a hitter or just a pitcher? It's really interesting. I, in real life, I mean, how, yeah, how, how do you value him? He, I would have to assume the contract will be structured in a way that allows for um, some flexibility from the player and or team standpoint. Like, like if you phrase it, if you, if you lay out the contract that he needs to meet both pitching and batting you know, thresholds to earn X or something, you know, whatever yeah. incentive that 
then that's going to give either the team motivation to not play him at dual spots or him vice versa. Do you know what I mean? So I think if there's different escalators that like, if he doesn't meet pitching, you know, pitching categories, his batting escalators can increase or vice versa. I think it's going to be, have to be something like that because you're right. How long can he realistically do, you know, maybe he pitches beyond, you know, the next three or four years, but maybe it's out of a bulb. I've heard a lot of discussion. He could be one of the most dominant bullpen guys. Um, you know, so he, yeah, it's totally unique. You're probably going to have to bring in some, you know, non-tangible type value valuations into the equation, I guess. Like he's going to, he's a marketing freak. I mean, everybody wants to see the guy. So that that's going to be a major draw for a team, whether they're, whether they just want to overpay him to bring him in from a marketing standpoint or whether they're actually going to say, you know, here's his on-field production and what that means, you know, how that translates into a, uh, into a contract. But it's a great question. I, I don't, I don't envy anyone who's, I don't envy you trying to project him or front offices actually trying to come up with a value on it. It's so difficult because if he's a reliever, then he's not hitting, you know? I, I don't well, know where this we goes. Have seen it. So you're right. You're right. There, that will be an interesting standpoint on it. The, the Angels, specifically under Joe Madden, have been very progressive in how they've handled him, though. So I would like to think they'll be creative enough to come up. Um, like, obviously, if you want him in a closer role, you know, and you need to eliminate the D, you know, you'll lose the DH, et cetera. There's so many roster, um, you know, variables that play into this that you can't really come up with a plan for him unless you just say, we're going to pitch you out of the bullpen on this day for this amount of, you know, this many innings. But the Angels also did for the first time in what, since the DH was started, punt on the DH in order to have him pitch and hit in the same lineup on the same day. so yeah, I think I think the Angels are will be flexible and try and get creative enough to you know to utilize him in both ways. But but you are right, you know, are other teams going to allow him to do this? Are they going to just want his forty home runs in the lineup and they will figure out the pitching part with other players? I, I don't know. It's it, it's a, it's a good question. He uh, he's the third best value batter in our system right now. And when I just use starting pitchers, if I just use him as a pitcher and I kind of bring in as, as many metrics as possible to stack up against him, he's a top 20 starting pitcher in terms of value. So I, I think, I think right there, and, and I think that's, that's known. He's, he brings more immediate impact to the game as a batter, but you, you hit the nail on the head a few minutes ago. It is just, it's, it's so hard to replace good pitching. You know, and that's why we don't see great names on these free agent lists because many have been locked up, especially the younger ones. You know, generally you're going to be 30 plus and you're going to have some sort of question mark attached to you. I don't think that's Otani. So if we're talking about right now and if we're talking about, what is he, age 30? Is he 30 yet? 27. He's just 27. So can he do this for five more years? At a B level, let's 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 not even say it's an A level. This is this might be a, an anomaly of a year here, but if he can do this for five years, is that worth four hundred million to you? <laughs> um, 
it's a tough question, but it's, I mean, no, I, I just, I don't know if any singular player is, you know, somebody's going to make 400 million, but I don't know if anyone's actually going right. to be worth it. But I, I don't know for him to clear a threshold like that. I think, I think you have to have some, you know, some conviction that he's going to be a pitcher and a hitter for the next, you know, for the length of that deal. Or, or else you, or else you just have to build it in that if he isn't, that's okay. But you know, you're going to lose this, or like th- things are going to shift over towards batting categories more. Do you know what I mean? Because the, uh, from the player and agent side, they don't know either. They don't know how long he's going to be able to do this either. Now, of course, they want to sell it as he'll be able to do this forever, but they don't know either. So they don't, they probably don't want to tie everything to, you know, if he pitches X innings or you know. No, there's no, if I'm if I'm putting my agent hat on, Dan, I'm building in none of that. I just want to maximize his value right now, saying, look at what this guy just did. There isn't a single player in the history of the game that's ever done this, and there's no reason to believe, and that's how I would sell it. There's no reason to believe he can't do this for the for the immediate future, so he should be paid as such. I, I'm not buying in on he's got to hit 600 plate appearance, or he's you know I'm not buying any of that. Um, even though that's really becoming a focus in a lot of these contracts, you're right. And we see it in football a lot, especially week 16, week 17, Dan, if there are certain, certain incentives built in, you know, a hundred catches or nine sacks or 75% of snaps, it's very controllable by the team. And there can be a lot of behind the scenes discussions with owners and GMs and coaches saying, got to watch yourself here. Got to watch yourself here. It happens. It's crappy, but it happens. And that's why in this in this scenario, there's so many things that can go wrong. And that's probably why you don't pay him 30, 35 million a year. But having this guy under contract with Mike Trout, right? In that city, in that state, I just think it's worth more than we can value. I think it is. So the only question mark to me is, and I'm sure you read the statement from him, does he even want to be there? Right? Right. Is, no, he, is he I, even going to take an offer from them? And, and Mike, I, I think there's legit hesitation there. Me too. Because, I mean, look at the look at the 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 reference we're going off of. Just look at the pitching staff. It's Otani and Patrick Sandoval and nobody. And I can't even believe I just put Patrick Sandoval <laughs> is like a you know a confident pitcher. You know, but. It's it, what are they going to do there? The teams, I mean, they'll spend money, but I don't. You don't just easily acquire pitching, and they've done a terrible job of developing it. And yeah, I so I would. I don't even know if Mike Trout wants to be there, but he's you know locked in long term. I would have to assume Otani is leaning toward like in the moment would would not resign unless yeah. he sees, you know, unless he sees massive improvement. But I just don't see how. How do you even improve that roster without? Spending you know six hundred million in this offseason on pitching, which is, is those guys would still be question marks anyway. So. Dan, is it a playoff team if Trout's healthy? No, no, no. I don't think so either. I mean, they were seventeen out. No, that's what I mean. I think they're. I mean, even the roster that I mean, you have nice young players like Brandon Mar- guys like Brandon Marsh, but I, there there is it's not much there yeah. that's appealing. There's, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Jared Walsh too. There's just not much roster depth there, pitching depth, bullpen depth. There's I, I don't know what they do there. He's got one more year, and it's 
certainly cheap. As many of you know, it's about five million, uh, five and a half to be exact. I don't know of any incentives built in. And then he's actually arbitration eligible in 2023. So he's not really ready to hit the free agent market until 2024 at age 29. If I'm his agent, I'm not waiting that long. <laughs> so if it's, if it's, there's a deal here, we like the deal. We'll figure out how to get out of here later. I sign that deal. Otherwise I'm demanding the trade right now, right now. I'm getting out of there right now yeah, before it gets too expensive and before it gets too difficult or before something with me physically changes. You know what I mean? I think, I think that could be a part of this winter. I really do, Dan. Right. And, and regardless of how teams feel or value him, I think it's safe to say they're going to chase the money regardless. I mean, he probably does want to win, but the, the contract he's on currently is massively underpaying him. It, it's not like he's made his $150 million in this league. Yeah. I think, you know, it, they're going to go for the biggest, the biggest deal. And as long as there's one team out there that, that, you know, convinces their organization that he's, he's the guy and that he'll be able to pitch and hit at this level for the next X amount of years, uh, all it takes is one organization and it'll probably happen. So I would, I don't think he's, going to like take some sweetheart discount to end up in the perfect landing spot or you know a bona fide world series contender i think they will um take the most money and just find the best situation among you know among massive contracts right in two years though unfortunately if that's going to be the case if you're just going to run this out for two more years which i guess you know there's worse situations the angels aren't a bad landing spot they're just not a well-built landing spot so you're betting on the fact that they can figure it out this winter they're going to have to take a risk with one of these pitchers we talked about, at least one of these pitchers we talked about. They're going to have to take one of those risks, you know? Right, right. To, to your point about it might be two years, though, and, and, like, what if he does go – what if they do – the agent does go to the Angels and says, like, listen, we're not, we're not re-signing here after the next year. You better, you better just get rid of us now. And then it's, you know, what, what does that trade frenzy look like? You know, Teams trying to acquire current Otani on a cheap contract with the ability to Correct. extend him. You know what I'm trying to say? That, that, no, that's, that, that's what I was alluding to before. I think that could be a huge part of this winter. I really do. I think I think he started it with this conversation a couple of days ago, basically saying, uh, you better get your act together, You know, which I love to hear because we've been saying that about the Angels for you know, five years now. Um, and they've tried. They've thrown money at the wall every single offseason trying to bring a couple of pitchers in that, that, that are kind of castaways. They just can't, they can't land that big fish. And I don't know, I don't know how you do that because you're right. Their, their farm system is a mess. It's not like teams are pining for any of their, their prospects right now. And they're certainly not developing pitching prospects that are coming up and helping the system in any way, shape or form. So you're just trying to bank off of garbage free agency every single off season. I don't know what you do with that. And, uh, there's some names here. There's some red flag guys here, you know, Syndergaard, Rodriguez, I don't think they can get involved with Robbie Ray or, or, or any of the big fish, to be honest. They're probably looking at the second tier to start. Maybe Carlos Rodon, maybe, but they have to do it. They have to pay right now before they have to pay Otani because they have to prove to him and prove to Mark Trout that they've, they can figure this thing out. It is a new GM, so I guess we got to give him 24 months to sort of see what he can do, but it's a huge winner for that unless Otani's just and his agency just says, forget it. We, we want to go to a, a better situation right now. Right. Yeah, exactly. And the, and the angels literally 
were in this predicament last year, yeah. which led to Jose Quintana and Julio Tehran and Dylan Bundy. Like that's what they did this last year and had to sign, you know, tier C free agents and, and it, it didn't do anything and they spent money on those guys. So it's yeah, so I don't bad. know how they, I, I don't know how they, how they fix this relatively quickly, which leads me to think like, you know, Otani's side has to be wanting to, to get a deal done is like, sooner than later, right? They don't want to wait that two years for him to hit the open market. A lot can happen with his his versatility in those two years. So I would think they're motivated to get a deal done or get to another team that can get a deal done, you know, as quick as possible. So yeah, really interesting. The angels, I don't, I don't know. Do you think they wait until the CBA is constructed to make, to ensure that the DH is everywhere? Is that a big, big part of Otani's future? Um, yeah, maybe, maybe the, the interesting part of this is that if they, if they, if they, if an organization said stop pitching, he is a very much above average outfielder or first baseman too. I mean, he has a, obviously has a good arm. We know that, but, um, so like, it's not like any perceived value from him would just be eliminated if he stops pitching right it's not like he's just a guy you can hit and you have to hide him at a dh spot is what i'm trying to say so um it's not like he's all or nothing in that in that context but yes i think in in terms of the angels specifically they might want to know more on that on that on that front before they commit to anything at what point in time is he a yankee (laughs) i mean Pass left, yeah, throws I, right, can play first base. <laughs> yeah, if he hits the market or, you know, is is shot, the Yankees would undoubtedly be involved, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah I think they're right up there waiting to pounce whenever something goes wrong. And I think that statement from him a couple of days ago was step one towards that, right? Because if they're, if they're 17 and a, game and a half back right now, and this offseason looks just like last offseason, it's going to be over, in my opinion. You're going to start to hear a ton of discontent. And at some point, you're going to hear it from Trout's camp too. You're going to have to. I mean, nobody can be this this satisfied, you know, outside of the fact that you're five hundred million dollars richer. Nobody can be satisfied with playing ball like this every single year. You know, it's Groundhog Day. So, uh, I think there'll be some turmoil eventually coming from this, unless they can land a big fish and and it totally works out. But it's such a hard way to build a team. It really is, and they've tried for a long time and. I don't know what you do with that. You're sort of stuck. You know, that's, that's the competitive imbalance. I think that a lot of people are talking about in this game right now. Like how do the Orioles get better without just dumb luck? You know what I mean? Like what they throw a hundred million at Syndergaard and he's just healthy for four years. Is that what happens? I mean, I guess that's kind of what happened with the nationals. You know, they took a chance on Max Scherzer who was a guy. I mean, he was a Cy Young winner already, but he had this arms arm thing and, Detroit didn't want to pay in their current model. And it proved to be one of the most efficiently big blockbuster free agent contracts in the history of sports. But that just doesn't happen. <laughs> like, uh, so how do the Angels and the, and the Orioles and the Pirates and these, these markets teams that just don't pay generally, how do they do this? It's, it's weird, you know? And, and unless trading really picks up like the NBA and the NFL has, they, you're just not going to see bad teams get good immediately in Major League Baseball. It's just not how it works, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, let's give a little credit to the organizations that are bad for being like, I, I will place some blame on them. I mean, we've seen yeah, they're small trying market. To 
Yeah, right. Or, or they're just not looking in the mirror to say, like, we need to make changes here, right? Like, it is possible, and there are other blueprints um, that have been, you know, proven to work, uh, you know, in other, you know, teams that operated on limited budgets, small markets, et cetera. I mean, at a certain point, it's on the Orioles that you haven't developed a pitching prospect in 10, 15 years. Like, it's on you at a certain point, right? Yeah. The Angels. You, you have, you know, every free, you, you try and supplement your, your drafted talent, which hasn't been very good with free agents who have just been terrible. Pittsburgh, you're trading away guys, you know, high-end prospects for, for Chris Archer. I mean, that's, you know, that's, I could go on all day about that, but you know what I'm trying to say. These teams, like, get credit for being bad. To a certain degree, there's a reason that bad organizations stay bad, but you're right. How do they flip the switch, um, you know, and acquire big talent when there's no salary cap and, and things like that? It's it's tough. I, I don't have a good answer, but you do have to start with internal development in my there's mind. two There's two angels currently in the top 100 prospect list, according to Major League Baseball. They're both pitchers. One is the number 24th, who's a lefty. Reed Detmers. Uh, it sounds like he's going to be ready next year. So maybe that's maybe that's something. If you had to yeah, pick, yeah, he, he's he's broke. He broke in here with September College. Yeah, correct. Yeah, and it sounds like he may stick in in February. So let's add him to this list. But of the names we've discussed, let's finish off on this. Of these names, if you had complete carte blanche here and you could put any of these pitchers on the Angels in 2022 to try, just try to take a step towards fixing this problem. And getting Otani and Trout back into the postseason, which which pitcher is that, Dan? Well, I don't think they'll be in the market for any of the top guys. I think I think Syndergaard is a really interesting start, but that I mean, you also don't, you know, that kind of move would require them going ter- with term, in my opinion, because you don't you don't want to bring him in on a one year deal. He looks incredible, and then you know you were just you were just the rebound, you know, you, you, he goes somewhere else and gets a massive contract. So um, I think they need to start with trying to catch lightning in a bottle and, and target one of these lesser known guys with some upside and not just like these, these cheaper free agent options who are washed, like, like what they did last year in free agents. <laughs> Easier said than done. Good stuff, man. We'll be back soon. We'll do some, uh, some relief pitchers. And certainly these position players as well. It's a decent list once you start to get, obviously, towards shortstops and some outfielders. But, um, you know, low-hanging fruit right now with with what could be happening with Major League Baseball. I know there's a lot of changes you'd like to see, and that's being hammered out hopefully behind the scenes right now. But hopefully we have baseball in February, and we can uh, kind of see where some of these chips fall. But good stuff by you to start here. All right. Thanks a lot. All right, my thanks to Cousin Dan. Always good talking baseball with him. And, of course, Sarah Langs. Slangs on sports on Twitter. MLB.com's big-time researcher. My thanks to The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash spot track for 40% off. And visit balancebridge.com. Get yourself a bridge against guaranteed future earnings. For Scott Allen, my name is Mike Gennetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Spot Track Podcast. 